thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gotten to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 166 of the Chills of World podcast. A pleasure today to be joined by Kai Harris. A little bit about Kai Harris. Kai Harris is a writer and educator from Detroit, Michigan. She uses her voice to uplift the Black community through realistic fiction centered on the Black experience. And she is the author of What the Fireflies Knew. If you're watching at home, top right here. And, and over her right shoulder as well. <laughs> the first fiction title from Tiny Reparations book. She's an assistant professor of creative writing at Santa Clara University. Go Broncos. You may know that I'm a I'm class of 2003. Welcome. How are you tonight? Thank you. Thank you. I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's an honor to have you on. And, you know, we're looking forward to talking about the book and, and some other things. But so, yeah, I mean, tell us about uh, what you got coming up, virtual, in-store, in-person, and just, you know, where to find your book, like you know, good bookstores that you want to recommend and social media and all that good stuff. Cool. Yeah. Um, you called me at a really exciting time because tomorrow, actually, well, it won't be tomorrow for the people listening. So <laughs> I guess I shouldn't say that. So by now, yes. um, the book is out in paperback, um, which is super exciting because um, it's an, a more accessible price point. Um, but also there's some cool extras in the paperback. There's uh, a, a read-along uh, discussion guide and there's also a playlist that I curated yeah. that you can go and listen to on Spotify while you read the book so yeah. uh, the paperback's out now um, the hardcover there's an ebook and there's an audiobook the audiobook's amazing it's narrated by Zinzi Williams um, who does an amazing job voicing the, the characters so um, you can check it out Wherever you like to get, you know, your books, I always say, you know, support your local indies. Um, I, I love Kepler's uh, here. I've um, done some some events with Book Think. 
um, and Bookshop Santa Cruz. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, I just say support your your favorite local indie. And um, you can also go on my website, uh, which is just kaiharriswrites.com, kaiharriswrites.com. And I keep all of the buy links uh, for the book there as well, along with just updates about what I have going on and, and all of that jazz. So you can always find out that way, too. Nice. The um, I feel like a, a a nerd when I say the word curate, but did you curate the playlist? I did. Yeah. I did. I had some help. Um, my husband definitely helped me at, at different points along the way. I was uh, pretty sold on. So it was it was somewhat easy to make the playlist because I mentioned music a few times in the book. So I was able to take those songs and I mentioned some artists. So I was able to find songs from those artists that kind of matched the, the tone or the theme that I was looking for. Yeah. And then some of the songs just came about because I was thinking about that time frame. Um, you know, I created a character who was growing up in the in the 90s, uh, namely because that was when I was that age. So I can kind of go back and remember, like, what was I listening to? And, mm. um, you know, I know I was really into Whitney Houston and, um, you know, there's some Prince, Michael Jackson, uh, lots of good music on the playlist. So hopefully nice. y'all will enjoy it. Nice. What would granddaddy be listening to? Um, there was, I'm trying to remember what, there were some tracks that were dedicated to him. Uh, oh, you know, I think it was this, hold on, I'm going to pull it up real fast because yeah. I don't want to misspeak. There was a, there was a really sad song that was. Oh no. That, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't Bone Thugs and Harmony. That wasn't for him. Um, okay. Well, let's stay together. Al Green. Okay. That was one that I felt like KB would have listened to when she was with granddaddy yeah. and then oh there's some uh frankie beverly amaze before i let go um these, and these are also songs that i remember listening to with my grandparents when i was growing up there's oh, earth wind and fire uh, which i also listened to with my grandparents so yeah there's, there's granddaddy on the list for sure all right so i'm thinking like 95 would be kind of right before like Eminem and Royce the Five Nine and all them from Detroit. yeah <laughs> yeah no there's no there's no Eminem uh it's no it's Sean. pretty it's pretty old school because the other thing is when I was that age, I preferred older music. Um, I didn't I didn't really start listening and I didn't really start listening to contemporary music until I was much older um, because I just always listened to what my mom was listening to and my family members. And I loved I loved that music. So yeah. it took me a while to get into the into the, you know, the hip part of my musical journey. Right. <laughs> was was um, would you were you called like an old soul often? Yeah, I yeah, I was. I was also I was just a huge bookworm. So I was always I was always reading and I loved reading books that were oftentimes much too old for me to be reading. Um just like KB, who, you know, at some point in the novel she's reading Their Eyes Were Watching God, mm. um, which is a book that I love very much. And as we see KB reading the book, she's admitting that she doesn't some of it's going over her head, but some of it feels very familiar and very easy for her to understand. And that's what I remember about my experience is reading some things that were, you know, much older and there would just be parts that I would just completely skip through. And I'd be like, well, I don't know what they're talking about, right. but I'm going to still, I'm going to just go with it. So, Yeah, that's true. That idea of just skipping five pages, it just, that's the way it was. Right? Yeah. So, so KB, um, you know, one of the guiding books in her life is or the, or the series of Anna Green Gables. Am I right? There's a series? 
Yeah, there is. Yep. So like, I mean, you as a kid, I mean, were you not just were you reading that specifically, but like what what were you reading? And like, did you kind of like feel yourself like a like a character in a in a bigger book? You know what I mean? Being Absolutely. Like yes. I know exactly what you mean. Um, so I also love Dan of Green Gables. And, you know, funny enough, I didn't intend on making books such a big part of this book. It just happened randomly because I I knew that KB was going to be a reader. Um, and when I was writing the opening scene of Mama and Nia and KB driving to Lansing, I just needed something for KB to be doing. Because at first when I wrote the scene, she wasn't doing anything. She was just only looking out the window. Um, and then at some point I was like, well, I should give her something to do. And so I was like, well, what would I do if I was on a long car ride? It was always reading. So I figured, okay, she's going to be reading. Let me give her a book. And without a second thought, I was like, Anne of Green Gables, which was solely because it was my favorite book when I was that age. Mm. And I didn't think about any of the implications of picking that book whatsoever. Mm. But it's funny to me now that, well, you know, at some point, the beauty of, of revising is that you start to notice all these little things that you did along the way. And then you can really, you know, dig into them and say like, okay, thematically, there are some cool things that happen when you think about this book next to a book like Anne of Green Gables. Um, so that got, that got really interesting. But yeah, those are the kinds of books I was reading. Anne of Green Gables. I love The Secret Garden, which I also have KB read at some point. Um, at that point in my life, I was reading uh, mostly books with uh, white main characters. And that was one of the big things for me is that it wasn't until I was in college that I started really reading books with black main characters. So I think before that I had read A Lesson Before Dying um, was a book that I read in high school that changed everything for me. Because before that, the only books I had really read with black characters were books about enslaved people um, or books with characters who I just, I felt like they weren't like me. Like I couldn't, I couldn't relate to their stories. And so I wasn't really reading books about just regular black kids, you know, like me, like just seeing them play and make friends and fight with their siblings and just, you know, regular stuff. So that was a huge part of why I ended up writing this book is thinking about my own journey with reading and where I feel like there were gaps and wanting to kind of pour something into those, into those gaps. What was it about at the Ernest Gaines work or just in general, some of those that you read, what was it? Was it like you talk about, was it just like the, not the minutia, but the, the banal, the, like you said, just like what's going on day to day. It's not some, it doesn't have to be some crazy off the wall storyline. It's just, you know, representations of daily lives. Like what was it exactly about, about the, the ones that you picked up in college and beyond? Yeah. You know, with with A Lesson Before Dying, I think that why, so it, it actually was the first book that I've ever read that made me cry. Mm. So, and I'm a big crier, but up until that point, I was, I was, you know, maybe 15 or something when I read it. And I would cry watching movies all of the time and things like that, but I would never cry reading books. That was the first time it happened. And I think what got to me was there were several things going on. It was the world of the story and the sadness of what was happening to the characters in the story and me feeling like I was able to identify with those characters and what was going on with them. But it was also the fact that my classmates were having a very different experience with the same text. And I became really aware of that. You know, I went to a predominantly white school. I was, I was maybe the only black kid in that class. Maybe there was one other, but I think I was the only black kid. And so as we were reading it, 
I was also just really struck by how different our experiences were and how meaningful reading that book was to me. And then I, I actually started feeling a little bit ashamed that it was so meaningful to me because, you know, when you're that age, you don't want to be different. Um, and so I was feeling very different than my classmates when I read it. So I think that played into my emotions as well. But yeah, you know, when I got to college, I discovered Toni Morrison. And that was probably the biggest thing that happened for me in terms of, you know, my writing journey and wanting to be a writer is diving into her works and, you know, coming to understand specifically, uh, you know, storytelling through the lens of, of some of her Black girl and Black women characters. And that part of her uh, that part of her art really stood out for me. And I think that, you know, from there, I've uh, just really tried to immerse myself with as many stories of Black girlhood and Black womanhood as, as I possibly can. Hmm. What, I mean, I know, I know these, I'm sure this list is interminable and maybe you don't want to leave certain people off or whatever, but <laughs> you know, as you get into 2023, even, I mean, who are, who are some of the writers you're just like, man, when they, when something new comes out, whether it's an article or a book or a short story, um, that, you know, that challenge you also, cause obviously you're, you're, a, you're a peer that challenge you, but also just like, uh, put you in awe. Uh, Jasmine Ward, <laughs> top of that list. Uh, and she has a book coming out and right. I am, I am thrilled. Uh, Salvage of the Bones is, is probably one of my all time favorite books. And it was the book I was reading when I started writing Fireflies. Mm. And, uh, there were so many influences from that story. I think specifically reading a book that was about something that was like really big, right? With Hurricane Katrina, but then also realizing how much my focus was not on this, on this big thing. My focus was on the things that were important to this character, this 15 year old girl who, yeah, there's a, a tragedy going on around her, but also she's dealing with her brothers and they're dealing with their dog and she's dealing with, you know, what's going on in her personal and romantic life. And it was just that feeling of like, even if we're in the midst of, of trauma, of tragedy, of like these major things, you know, when we're young people, we're also always just navigating our, ourselves, our own stuff and trying to, you know, and so in that way, regardless of all these other things that are going on, we still just feel like normal kids, you know, that are just trying to navigate the, the world. So that book was was hugely inspiring to me as I as I wrote and outside of that I've, I've read that book um, that's one of the I'm not a big person who rereads actually yeah. the only books that I reread are um, I've, I've reread many of, of Toni Morrison's books and and that book uh, maybe a couple others I don't usually like to to go back too much but yeah so Jasmine's top of that list for me um I've been reading some things I've really enjoyed um there's, I think it's up here, there's Nobody's Magic by Destiny Birdsong um, was was beautiful. Uh, Disha Filia's Secret Lives of Church Ladies uh, was one of the, the best things that I've read lately. And I recommend that book to everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was saying like yeah. a cultural marker. It's like, yeah. it's like a, I hate, I hate to use the word paradigm, but it's like a paradigm shift. Just like, man. Yeah, it's. I just, I, I read it and, I, and so I have reread that. I have read that one again. Um, yeah. And, you know, I go back to some of the stories there and uh, reconnect with the characters, but she's, she's just brilliant. Um, and so, you know, I think the beautiful thing for me is feeling like, you know, you just said something about me being kind of like a part of this group now, which hearing you say that still just feels very strange to me because 
it's hard to feel like I'm a part of this group because I'm just, you know, I've always been kind of like looking at this group, like, oh my gosh, what are you, you know? Um, so it's interesting to feel like I'm now at a point where I'm trying to offer my voice to this chorus of voices and, and get in the conversation. And, you know, it's been beautiful the ways that I've found parallels between what I'm writing and what I'm working on and what other Black women writers are writing and working on. Um, you know, sometimes it's a little too close to, to come for comfort. You know, I was working on a book um, some years back and then The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas came out and I read it and it turns out we basically wrote the same book. And, you know, I think it's a beautiful thing. I think it stems from the fact that we have shared experiences and there are things that we want to, you know, talk about and put down to paper. So um, I'm still working on that one. I haven't given it up, but I did have to go back and, you know, kind of figure out like, okay, which parts of this story um, will I still tell in this way and which parts will I kind of shoot with it? But it was hilarious to me when I read it because I was like, how is this possible? Um, You know, in other books I've had that experience. Uh, I feel like I read Annie John by Jamaica Kincaid after writing what the fireflies knew and when i read it i was like wow kb is so much like annie john like there are so many parallels um but i had never i had never picked up the book before writing my own so you know it's beautiful and and also it gets you know kind of funny because i'm just like oh look we did this you know i did this too so it's cool so when so when the hate you give part two comes out with a ghostwriter (laughs) name or a pseudonym we'll know it was you then okay you're gonna be like that's Kai. <laughs> Kai wrote that. Yeah, no, I'm. I'm gonna. You know, I think that. I think the other beautiful thing is that we storytellers are all telling the same stories over and over and over again. You know, um, and so and people still want and need to hear the the stories that we're telling. I think it's just about figuring out which aspects of it to uh, to do what with to to play up to. You know, so I think now it's kind of like a fun puzzle for me, um, just uh-huh. figuring out how to tell this story in a way that's going to feel brand new. What's, here's, a, here's a Fireflies connection. What's, uh, you know, Ecclesiastes, how do you say the, the biblical? Oh, uh, yeah, Ecclesiastes. Right. I believe it's from Ecclesiastes, which is what KB was like trying to pronounce because her granddaughter. Yeah. But Eat I, believe it's, I believe it's from that that where the, the line about, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Yeah. Yep. That, that became, you know, Ernest Hemingway and the son, you know, and then mm-hmm. I think it was a Metallica song, like, you know, it's like it's just same stories, same yep. basic stories, right? But just like you said, different, different emphases and stuff. And that's what we like. It's comfortable, you know? Yeah. Well, shoot, that's why there's like 900 different uh, Marvel movies, right? And, and they're really yeah. the same movies from our childhood. I watch all of them. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> about like Detroit and how it um shaped you like uh I don't I mean I don't I don't know much about Detroit's like literary scene I know there is one but like I don't know if it's necessarily the literary scene or just Detroit in general if you felt how if you can like even enumerate or like pick out how Detroit has influenced you as a writer yeah so there's not a there's not a ton of Detroit in this book uh there will be more Detroit in other in other projects but you know, I, I grew up there and I think there are there's a lot of nuance in my relationship with Detroit because I while I grew up there and lived there for most of my childhood, 
I didn't attend school in the city, um, except for maybe a year or two. Outside of that, we drove 30 minutes to school, to a school in, the, in a suburb that was predominantly white. That was, you know, school I was previously. Um, so it was like I was always kind of living in two different worlds. And, and that's, you know, going back to, you were talking about the hate you give, and I have that in common with the, the main character of that, of that book. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, kind of, I was always half in and half out. So I think that's a part of my Detroit experience. But um, yeah, you know, this book was set in Lansing, which is another place that was really special to me because I spent time there in the, in the summer with my grandfather. Um, so I didn't focus, I didn't focus too much on Detroit, but it definitely is going to to factor into other stories. You know, I think the interesting thing is, you know, I'm the kind of person that's very honest, you know, and so I want to make sure that I'm ready to think about how I want to take the city because I have so much love for Detroit, um, but I also have had some very complicated experiences growing up there. So uh, I think when I do write about Detroit, I'm going to try to figure out how to how to show that, how to show the balance between that, what it meant for me yeah. in my life. But um, in terms of the literary scene, I didn't really get into writing until after I left Detroit. Um, mm. You know, I started writing as a kid, but it was just for fun. I didn't think that I was going to be a writer career-wise until after college. So I had already left home and was kind of out doing my thing. And then I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll <laughs> maybe I'll be a writer because I don't know what else I'm doing. <laughs> Shoot. If we could only just be like, ah, eh, and have the talent <laughs> that you have, you know, I guess why not? Why not? Right. <laughs> so I wonder what, you know, as as a as a professor at the great Santa Clara University, I wonder what uh what you're teaching, what your students are really into. Yeah, so I love teaching at Santa Clara. It's it's been such an amazing experience so far. This is the you know beginning of my second year, so I teach a variety of things. Um, right now, I'm teaching a, a CTW, which is critical thinking and writing. It's like a first year course, and I'm really excited because this year I'm teaching that course to lead students, and lead students are first generation students at oh, no. Santa Clara. So my entire class is all first-generation college students, and we have so much fun together. I was also a first-generation college student, so yeah. I think it's easier for me to uh, to they're they're my people. I get I understand kind of where they're at and what college feels like for them. So sometimes I'm able to bring that into the classroom and just say, you know, hey, outside of the lesson that I'm planning for today, let's just talk about this experience that you you're probably having or you know how's the transition going how are you feeling about making friends are you going to your professor's office hours you know are there are there just questions that you have and you're scared to ask anyone hmm. um so I love being in that environment and then I teach a lot of creative writing um I'm teaching a senior a senior seminar right now hmm. which is on the topic of uh coming of age stories through the lens of black women writers so it's like my whole thing yeah. it's it's uh, it's my dream class. And actually, when I interviewed at Santa Clara, it was the class that I said I would love to teach if I if I came and I was able to bring it here. And we're reading um, coming of age fiction by black women and we're working on writing our own coming of age narratives mm. um, and just learning about the genre in general and thinking about how black women writers specifically have had to reimagine the coming of age genre to match with their, you know, specific experiences and their, you know, the limitations that society are going to put on 
black folks and on women and how that's going to impact that, you know, narrative arc we usually see in a, in a coming of age story. So um, that class is all seniors. So this, this quarter I'm teaching one class that's all freshmen and one class that's all seniors. So, you know, kind of opposite experiences, but um, we just have such great conversations in the classroom um, about the thing we're reading. We just finished up reading The Bluest Eye, um, which was the first time I've ever taught that book. And um, it was a journey. It was it was a very interesting experience. Um, my students did an amazing job, you know, showing up and, and, and digging into the text. So, yeah, but I teach, you know, I teach a creative writing and social justice class that I really love where we kind of get out in the community and do some work in addition to writing some some social justice related fictions and, and poetries and uh, and then I just teach regular you know fiction workshop like here are the basics of of writing fiction yeah. oh, very cool that that seminar you're talking about I mean it'd be cool to take that any year but but you know last semester spring uh, last semester senior year would be awesome there's just a yeah an ease I feel like an ease about that you know like yeah you're kinda, and you're like hey I want to take a class that's really fun and, and challenging but like yeah, yeah, that's cool. Like of my own choice, right? Definitely like an elective. That's cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reading from the acknowledgments. Um, it was it's quote, when I was a little when I was a little black girl growing up in Detroit, I had oh, shit, I got small font here. I had a ton <laughs> of questions all the time and thought I could be everything, uh, just like KB. I spent a lot of time obsessing over what I thought a quote perfect family should look like. I wonder why my family didn't look like the lives of the people in the stories I read. For a long time, I thought something was wrong with my life. Now I know that there was something wrong with the, those stories. That mm-hmm. hit me so hard that I knew there was something wrong with those stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's, it's been said, obviously, there's, you know, so many different types of families. There's no yeah. one family. There's no perfect family for sure. But just like, I thought that was so interesting and clever and, and profound that something was wrong with the stories. So that kind of takes us into, you know, into the book and kind of just seeds for for the book. Yeah. You know, I I love writing family stories. I think, you know, it's one thing that we all have in common. We all have families, you know, whatever they look like, we all have some semblance of that or we have the absence of that. But family is a part of all of our lives in one way or the other. Um, and so I, I think that it's just really interesting to try and navigate it. And, and like you said, to try to show different versions of it. And uh, that's something that I'm going to continue to explore as I write is trying to show as many varied depictions of what family can look like, whether it's, you know, chosen family or found family, whether it's, you know, strained family relationships, um, you know, I think all of those things are so universal. We can all kind of dive into into that. And one of the things I've loved most about publishing Fireflies is how many people reach out to me and tell me, mm. you know, reading this <clears throat> reminded me of me and my sibling growing up. Or reading this helped me think through some stuff that happened in my childhood that I hadn't processed or reminded me of this dynamic with this parent or this family member or reminded me of my, you know, grandparent who has since passed away. There are just so many stories like that, that I've been hearing from people across all walks of life. And that has been, you know, one of the most amazing parts of this journey. Hmm. I can see myself giving this to my high school students to read. I can see myself giving this to my, you know, 35 year old friends were like, did you have a, an age in, in mind? Like YA, like. 
contemporary, you know, literary fiction, like you, I guess you and also the publisher, <clears throat> what were the thoughts on that? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was a, it was a collaborative kind of thinking through, but when I wrote it, I was pretty adamant on the fact that I was writing it for adults. Um, I knew that that was risky because my character, my main character is so young. She's 10 going on 11. And um, usually that would indicate a book for young people. But I knew that I wanted to write a story for adults from the perspective of a child. Um, because I think that was a part of the, the project as well, um, was I thematically was thinking a lot about the ways that we as adults interact with young people in our lives and the ways that, you know, young people can be right there in the midst of everything going on in the midst of trauma, in the midst of family secrets. And yet they might still be getting told to kind of just stay in their place. And, you know, um, you know, I think the expectation is like the kids don't notice what's going on. And I remember being a kid and I just thought it was so strange. I was like, do they think that I can't see and hear? Like, you know, I'm, I'm right here. And so what would end up happening is I would just have all these questions about what was going on, but I also knew better than to ask them because I wasn't supposed to. So I'm formulating all these things in my mind about what's going on, which is probably scarier for me than if someone would have just answered my question. So anyways, I wanted to kind of comment on that and get us thinking about how we as adults show up in the lives of our young people and how we let them show up in ours. Because also I feel like KB is the person in our family who um, kind of helps everyone to move towards healing um, ultimately. And I think it's beautiful because she's the youngest person in the family and she's so powerful and she's so wise. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I knew that I wanted it to be a story for adults to read told from the perspective of a kid. Um, and pretty much my publisher was on the same page as that. But what we noticed is that uh, it we started to become popular amongst high school aged, you know, groups of people. So now where, where we're at is we are starting to push that as well. You know, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend the book for younger than high school. If you if you have a child who's younger than high school and you want to read it with them, I think it could be a good partner read for mm -hmm. an adult and a child to read together. And then that way, you know, you get to some of the harder moments or themes. You can kind of talk it out with each other. Um, but we have lots of high school readers now. I've actually started to do high school visits, which is nice. another one of my favorite um, mm -hmm. things about this journey. The first time I went and talked to a library full of high school students about this book. Their energy was just amazing. The questions they asked. I love getting questions from young people because they are not going to pretend, you know, they're going to ask you the questions. Uh, so it's just been amazing. So yeah, at this point, it's mostly high school and adult readers. Point of view is just so well done. It's like, uh, you know, like, I mean, it's not, it's not dumbed down. It's not something that 11 year old would read because you have an 11 year old, you know, who's the narrator. I mean, right. so, so, so many examples, but like things like, you know, she, she being KB in a sense for Kenyatta Bernice, right? She, um, you know, the word fiend is a word that's thrown around with her dad before he dies. We'll talk about right. that in it, you know, and she's trying to figure out exactly what that means and, you know, talk, thinking about when she'd heard it previously and using context clues and all that, um, right. you know, relating it to like New Jack City, you know, like pop culture, you know, the kids, yeah. movie, right? Like something, oh, I saw it in a movie and he said it and, you know. Yep. And, you know, uh, things like feeling like adults lie, which, you know, that's true, right? Uh, <laughs> right. Not just what a kid would say, the truth, objectively, you know, and about how they talk down to her. Yeah. Um, you know, just these are all just, you know, examples of that point of view that's so well done. You know, raccoon dreams. She's having dreams about raccoons. 
you know, the whole bad word thing, right? She's like, oh, can I say it? Who's around? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, she counts things when she's waiting. She counts like, oh, how many songs? Yeah. Just so much like a kid. So much like a yeah. kid. Right. But also, you know, I hate the terms overused, but like an old soul. She's she's a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's she's got that innocence about her that's that's um that makes everything so much more emotional, right? She's like yeah. she's a good, sweet hearted person. Good yeah. person. Um the the book starts off in nineteen ninety-five. It's italicized, it's kind of set aside, and it's a stunning opening sentence that basically talks about how KB found her father dead. Yeah. Right. And she hears the police use the term fiend as they come in. And, you know, there's not a lot of sensitivity by the police, you know, as they yeah. pick up his body and all of that. And then it goes to, fast forwards to, I want to say June to the summer of 95. Right. Mm-hmm. What an interesting time too, right. I think I'm guessing I probably got you. I'm, I'm more, I'll be more Nia, the sister's age. I think mm-hmm. I would have been 15 that year before, before the internet really yeah. or phones where you could yeah. get bored or bored yeah. thing. Yeah, like, I thought it was so cool. I mean, I, mean, I know you said it there, you know, because it, like it says it, it matches with your time, but it's just such a cool time, right? That was a part of why I wanted to write that moment too, because it, yeah, it was that kind of moment right before you know things started to really change, and that, that was why KB was able to be bored so often yeah. and have to go and find things to do. So. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the Anne of Green Gables connection. Mm-hmm. They in in all in the aftermath of the of their father's death, um, we later find out it was from an overdose. Mm-hmm. You know that 100% for sure? 99%, 100%, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 I got you. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, so at first there's not a lot of description of like how the family's doing. It's basically yeah. to the summer because we skipped those months. We, you know, right. she goes back to him eventually. But, you know, and obviously the mother, mom is having a hard, hard time. Like, duh. And yeah. she drives them to Lansing, Lansing, Michigan from Detroit and leaves it with granddaddy. And at first, granddaddy, I mean, he doesn't even. There's no hugs. There's no there's yeah. not any words, really. It's like, when you think he'd say something, you know. <laughs> um, but this idea right. is, right, is that all of them kind of need to, in the line from the book, I think it was for about, about KB, is that she's, quote, turning her sad into mad for once. Yeah. What what to do with these with these feelings? And just yeah. because the mother's older doesn't mean that she's, you know, everything's good. She always puts up a front. She's always, She's a very strong person. I guess I'm, I'm just, I'm the world's biggest fan of flashbacks and it's not like it's a, you know, huge flashback. It's a couple months, but I just thought you did it so uh, skillfully where you kind of just, you know, give us little grains, like looking back in that time between January and June. Right. Right. I kind of wonder about like, maybe even like the process of writing it. Did you, did you write it chronologically as we read it? Or did you write some of those like mini flashback scenes, like, you know, throughout, How, how did that work? I did not write it chronologically um, because I didn't know where I was going with it at first. I I didn't have the, actually daddy's death didn't, I didn't write that for a while. Um, For a while I was just, it it was just KB being with her grandfather for a summer. Mm. There wasn't this kind of big thing that had happened. And I realized that there was really nothing at stake um, the way that I had written it, it was, you know, just a story of a, a girl over the summer, which was, which it still ends up being, 
But I think by putting daddy's death at the start of it, there's so much more that's going on. And we, we, re- we come to realize how deep everything is, you know, because we're watching all of these characters navigate trauma and grief um, in the midst of all the other things that we see them doing. So, yeah, so I didn't write it chronologically. I was kind of just figuring it out as I went. Um, and a lot of the flashbacks were me coming in in revision and saying, what's missing? Like, what context do we not have that would make this feel more compelling or, you know, and one of the things I really wanted to focus a lot on was giving characterization to daddy's character, because it was really important to me to show him as a, you know, a a flawed character, but a good character, Uh, a person who, you know, loved his family, loved his wife, loved his children, and ended up on a really bad path and wasn't able to get off of that path in time Hmm. because that's the experience, right? I don't think, you know, I, I, you know, I grew up in a family where I had family members who struggled with addiction, where I had family members who, um, you know, I guess like, you know, dealt with, you know, the kinds of issues that we usually don't talk about that we kind of sweep under the rug and and no one's going to say anything about it. Um, But the thing that was interesting for me as a kid was like, these are just my family members, right? Mm -hmm. So even if I found out that someone was in trouble, they had done something bad or they were addicted or they were struggling with whatever it was, I still knew them as the person who, you know, played, taught me to play cards or Mm -hmm. who, Um, you know, gave me money to go to the store and get candy when I wanted to and all of these things. So I just, I wanted to show all of that. I wanted to show daddy as a a character who uh, was both things at the same time, you know, and um, especially with him being a, a, you know, black male character, I felt like it was really important for me to show that dynamic um, rather than just painting him out to be a bad guy. Right. Um, because he wasn't, you know, and so I think a lot of my flash, my flashbacks were working on that, building that characterization. You know, there's a thing that I show that I tell my students in class often in creative writing classes. I'll say, you have to show us what these characters were like before this, before the start of the story, before, you know, especially if you have a story where things are just all bad. Mm-hmm. Um, if you never show me what the characters look like when things are OK, I don't know the I don't know the difference. Right. So I might not recognize them as being in a state of turmoil because I don't know them. I've only met them in this state. Mm-hmm. So show me what they're like when they're good too. Yeah. So I can get a sense of like, oh, things are bad now because look at these dynamics, these shifts um, in the characters and the ways that they're relating with each other. So that's what I wanted to do is, mm. is show what KB and her family were like before all of this. And, you know, that gives you also, so then you're able to see the relationship between KB and Nia, right? You're able to see what that looked like before this. You're able to see mama because she is mostly in the book through flashbacks as well. Even though she's still mm-hmm. alive, she's not present physically. Right. So a lot of her characterization also happens through those flashbacks. So yeah. it was really important for me to, to paint a, a a deep picture of the family. And a lot of that had to come through those flashbacks. Yeah. That makes so much sense. You're talking about how you, what you teach to your students, like there's something about, I mean, that comes automatically, right. With flashback, you get juxtaposition, you get right. the before and the after and yeah. And and then the special resonance with, with KB being, you know, 11, 10, 11 years old, 
but in seeing these things and knowing part of them and you as a reader really fill in the rest. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it really made me think too, about uh, talking about with the, with daddy and his, his drug issues, mm-hmm. you know, like, you know, you know, like the opioid, opioid crisis and, and all of that and right. how there are some really good advances and like, Hey, this is a disease this is, you know, and treating people yeah. like people. And I know a lot of people have said, Hey, where was that in the eighties? Where was that with crack? Where was that with, you know, yeah. a lot of, and it, that made me think of that where, you know, like you said, he's not a bad person, right? He has a problem. He has an issue. Yep. Um, and you, you talk about those great moments, the 4th of July when they were together and just, you mm-hmm. know, this orgasm board of food and, and some really good times. Yeah. Again, you know, the 11 year old, there's so much about the world as a whole that she talks about. So she makes kind of makes friends with, with Charlotte and Bobby across the street. Mm-hmm. These white, these white kids, right? And at first, it's kind of she's just like, "Hey, I, I want to make a friend," and she's like, "Hey," and they're like, "Hey, who are you?" Kind of, you know, without without yeah. the words, <laughs> they have fun. They they exchange rocks. Yeah. They talk about books, and the the shadow in the background is the mother who yeah. doesn't say it at first, but she's basically like, "Hey, don't don't play with them." Yeah. And KB is worldly enough to say, mm, "I wonder why." The when when the grandfather when granddaddy kind of exp- basically explains racism to her, mm-hmm. I mean that's obviously so touching. It's like, damn it, like the world has caught up to her. You know what I mean? Like yeah. she's got to learn about all the ugliness of the world, right? That that fleeting friendship, right? And later on, you know, when the friendship continues amongst the kids, and as usual, the adults mess it up, and the mother basically, you know, without saying racial slurs, she basically, you know, she's racist. Right? Saying, you know, oh, and, you know, they found out little things about the the family. Oh, yeah, your dad. Oh, he's not with you. Okay, ha, ha, you know, all of this stuff. Right. When he, when the granddaddy goes across the street, she's falsely accused of stealing the bike of Charlotte the girl. When the granddaddy goes across the street, and he's so mellow and relaxed and tranquil, but that that was one of the hardest hitting for me. Mm-hmm. Was like, how can a person be that calm? Yeah, he, he says on the effect of like, you know, we don't have to be like the past generations. Right. I wonder if you felt him granddaddy as granddaddy or is he kind of like also like a stand in for like civil rights movement folks. And mm. you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I don't I, I wasn't I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote it, but reading back over it, I do get that feeling from, you know, reading his scenes. I think you know, the scene where he's kind of talking to KB about things that he experienced when he was a child. That scene is, was really important to me because, you know, first of all, I wanted to show that, you know, for, for Black kids, uh, those conversations are happening that young. If they're not happening that young, you're going to find it out in the world Hmm. by yourself. You know, Um, I unfortunately found out from the world before I found out from my parents about racism and it confused, it confused me. It scared me. It made me so sad. And so KB gets to kind of have a a bit of a conversation before that kind of rude introduction, but she's not buying it. Right. She's listening to granddaddy talk and she's like, this is not how the world is. You know, the world's not like this anymore. These are my friends. You don't have to worry about any of the things that you're talking about. And I think that that, is that easily translates to right now, right? Where we kind of convince ourselves that we live in this society, you know, people throw around terms like post-racial or, you know, all of these different things. Um, But for some people, it won't ever be, right? We We can ban books, we can take content out of schools, 
but the lived reality is going to always be the lived reality. And that's just, you know, that's just what it is. So uh, that scene was really important for me to write, to give KB kind of this introduction to also show how she feels like this doesn't apply to me. Um, And then she kind of goes out into the world and she's like, let me show you, like, these are my friends and I'm going to be friends with them now. And for a little while she does, Charlotte is probably one of the people she's closest to in the novel in the sense that Charlotte's the first person she tells everything about kind of what happened with daddy. Um, She's never talked to, she hasn't even talked to her mom and Nia about it so much, you know, because they've been very standoffish. So Charlotte does give her that opportunity to, you know, feel heard. Unfortunately, Charlotte is very young and impressionable. And so towards the end of the novel, she's not able to have KB's back. But, you know, I wanted to show that, again, they're not they're not bad kids. You know, that there's they're very important to KB in her journey. They're, you know, probably the best friends that she has in this um, environment. Um, And at the end, you know, I do offer, you know, a little bit of an option for for Bobby and Charlotte. Yeah, 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 to to have an opportunity to to be different, just like Granddaddy described, you know. So I, I think I wanted Granddaddy to be very calm in that scene because I, I wanted to show that he's seen this over and over and over again. And you know, for him, it's it's nothing new. It's no different than him being a little kid, you know, trying to get the candy from the candy store with his friends. It's it's just replaying, and he's doing his best to soften it for KB to to you know find a way that it could be different for her because that's what he's, he's, he's hopeful, you know, that it could be different for her. So um, yeah, it was, uh, it was complicated to write. Um, that, that whole thing was complicated to write, but um, I'm, I'm happy with how it turned out because I think that it says a lot about a, a few different things. I wonder if I can, if I can ask, like you are talking about like being confused when the world mm-hmm. taught you, was it like a confusion? Like, you know, like speaking about Zora Neale Hurston, she has that great piece where she's, she writes about just kind of like me. How could you hate me? Yeah. Like, I'm so freaking cool. Yeah. Was it kind of like that? Not not to say you're conceited. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> was it just kind of like, what, why why me? Was was that the confusion, or was it a lot of things? It was. It was a lot of that. I was, you know, I, I won't go fully into it, but I was a young child walking to school, and some adult people yelled something out to me, and my first reaction was like looking around. Like, well, they couldn't possibly be talking to me because one, I'm a kid. Two, you're adults. Three, I don't know you. Four, I'm not even sure exactly what the word means. There were so many things that were going through my mind because I was I was very young. Um, but yeah, it was this confusion of just like, what are they saying and why would they say it to me? You know, I wasn't doing anything. I was a little kid with a backpack on walking to school, you know? So um, yeah, I think it is that it, it's just, you know, it's that moment where you realize that there are things about me, my identity, who I am, that could cause someone to hate me without knowing me at all. Um, and that's a really hard pill to swallow. Thank, thank you for sharing that. So, you know, Nia and KB, I mean, they're bickering like any sisters would. But, it, you know, the, with, with all that they've gone through, the the intensity definitely ratchets up. And, you know, there's I hate you and they're throwing, you know, words at each yeah. other some really hateful words. Nia's Nia seemingly is she's into boys and nothing else. She, you know, her sister's annoying to her. There's Nia's what, like, like 15, 14. Yeah. She turns 14. 15. To, okay. So uh-huh. 14, 10, 15 and 11 throughout. They yeah. both have their birthdays during that summer. And it's just kind of like, 
you know, she isn't that that 11 year old age, you know, she's not yet into boys, she, you know, it's that it's yeah. the tween size, you know, I think it's even more yeah. awkward than the 15, 16 year old years. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, um, but you were talking about earlier how, like in a, in a positive way, how KB like is like the one who brings them all together, but right. she's also burdened, right. She's also burdened by yeah. hearing these stories. She knows more about all of the stories involved, including granddaddy and, and, and mom's, you know, relationship and history. Um, so, I wonder just about like the pressure on KB as the daughter that maybe Nia didn't necessarily feel. You know, they're having two very different experiences. And somebody asked me a couple days ago if I would ever write a a, a sequel to this book from Nia's perspective. Mm. And that was like a really interesting question to me. People have asked me before if I would ever write about KB again. And I've usually said probably not. You know, I wouldn't say never, but I felt like I was done writing her story. I did actually try to write an older KB at some point. And I just, I don't know, I couldn't find the voice and make it, I, I it just didn't feel right. Um, so I kind of felt like, I think I'm done telling her story. But the question about Nia was an interesting one. I think I, a lot of times wondered how the story would look different if I had told it from Nia's perspective, you know, because anytime you're writing a story, you're choosing whose perspective to, 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 you know, focus on. And it would have been a completely different story from Mia's yeah. perspective. And even though she was, she, her circumstances were very similar to KB's, but it would have been a very different story, you know, but the thing is, is Mia is grieving just like KB is. Um, and Mia has another trauma that KB doesn't even know about, right. That has to do, you know, that's uh, in, in terms of her relationship with daddy. Mm -hmm. And so Nia is in this complicated situation where unlike KB, because KB just loved her daddy and thought he was a wonderful dad. Nia had more complicated feelings about her dad um, because of the things that happened between them because she was older. And so for her, she's grieving and she's sad, but she's also dealing with these really complicated feelings, um, you know, that I think a lot of us can relate to if you, you know, ever lost someone who you had a complicated relationship with. Um, so, you know, I think the interesting thing is KB and Mia were super close and probably still could be, but they're each trying to navigate something and, what KB figures out is we have to actually share with each other. We have to talk to each other. We have to, you know, the way that we can get through this is together by talking about it, by listening to each other, by letting each other cry. And it's when they kind of have those moments that they're both able to, to start to move forward. Um, but yeah, you know, KB and Nia are like any other siblings. You know, I have an older sister. She's not as older then, you know, me and her only have a less than two year age gap. So we're not KB and Mia, but, you know, it's it's easy to write a sibling story if you have a sibling, you know, all yeah. of us kind of know those dynamics and can get them down on the page. I think what was interesting about getting their story down on the page or their dynamics down on the page was trying to think about how the trauma and the grief was affecting each of them in different ways. You know, we see KB start up this counting habit and, her focus is a lot on control. KB is trying to control everybody and everything around her. She's trying to fix her family. She's trying to, you know, get them back home, get them all together. That's where her trauma and grief, that's what's helping her function. 
Nia is withdrawing. Nia is feeling the need to distance herself from members of her family to strike out on her own. And, you know, I think in that way, she is trying to just uh, not feel. Um, She's trying to go be a regular kid and hang out with friends and hang out with boys and get her mind off of what's going on at home. But they're both doing the same thing. They're both coping. They're trying to find ways to cope and it looks different. And, you know, it kind of takes them till the end to realize, like, we're both doing this. We're both trying to figure this out. And it would probably go so much better if we weren't actively harming each other while we were trying to do it, which, you know. I could talk on and on about trauma and the ways and and grief and the ways that we navigate it, because that was another thing I really wanted to put in the novel because, you know, grief is really fascinating and it hits all of us differently. And I think in this one novel, you see every character dealing with it differently. No two characters experience it the same because even mama, right, has a completely different response to the trauma and the grief, which is what propels her to take her kids to her, her dad's house in the first place. So you know, I think I just wanted to explore that a bit through the, the dynamics of those relationships. So, I mean, we should understand that Mama was like at a, like, what do you call it, like inpatient facility? Yeah. So, I mean, I don't ever put it, I mean, yeah, there are there are hits throughout and KB does ask some questions. You know, this is one of those books where we know as much as KB knows. So if she doesn't know it, it it's not true, right? So that was one of the things I struggled with because in earlier versions of the book, KB had no idea where her mom was and I didn't put it on the page. And so it was just like a huge mystery. And a lot of people were struggling to feel compassion towards mama's character because they were like, how would she just abandon her kids? And I knew that I was trying to write something. I, you know, I write a lot about mental health, both through my fiction and like, you know, you know, just essays. And um, anytime I can talk about mental health, I do. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to show Honestly, I felt like I wanted to show something that felt very radical because I don't know if, I, if this would even happen at this time, right? That this Black woman would have lost her husband and would have prioritized herself in this way. That she would have said, you know what? My mental health is suffering. I need to have a break. I need to take my kids somewhere safe. And then I need to go take care of myself. That's radical, right? Especially yeah. in the Black community, things like therapy and mental health awareness are taboo. Um, you know, especially at that point in the 90s. So, you know, I wrote it, even though I was like, yeah, it probably wouldn't have happened like this at this time. But I wanted to show it. I wanted to show I wanted to show granddaddy, a member of the older generation, having to look at what his daughter did and try to understand it and try to find compassion for her, um, which is, again, radical um, for yeah. the for this community and for, you know, this time period. But I wanted to show it because I think it's important to show a woman make that kind of a decision yeah um, so. hey the 90s went that long ago okay don't talk about them like they were like centuries <laughs> listen is i don't know it's feeling longer and longer it ago is. the older it i is. the longer i stay on this planet oh, so. God, it really is. <laughs> no you're right i mean what a what a difference i'm trying i'm just thinking of like the difference where if in that earlier draft you're talking about where if mama were just away yeah Yep. You, you couldn't help but think, man, how could she be you know how could she be leaving them at this time it's a different like story said, yeah yeah radical and like and you hear in the phone calls, like she's she's going through things, obviously, and she's conflicted yeah. and she's ambivalent and you feel for her because, yeah, she, why wouldn't she be incredibly affected like all of them? Like you said, very radical. Right. 
way yeah. back in the day in 1995. Back in the back in the day, back in decades, our day, decades ago. Actually, multiple <laughs> decades. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah. So you you have some great scenes um, that really sum up like the the split in this with the sisters, like the the birth their various birthdays, the barbecue, like the family barbecue for the Fourth of July. You know, they're starting to get stories about their family from other people. Um, so they're not as subjective. Well, they're always subjective, but they're getting more stories. And so they're getting a better right. idea. Unfortunately, KB gets to know Rondell, who is not good for her. Seems right. like he is. Seems like they share things in common. I mean, is he is he like 17 when he says he's like 11? Like, he's definitely older than he says, right? He's older than he says. I don't think I ever gave his age but kb started to pick up on clues she mm -hmm. started to realize that he was in high school yeah. um which was the the first way that she knew something was was off um but yeah rondell is has the capacity to be a good friend to kb and i wanted to show him as another character who is flawed you know i don't give a ton of backstory on rondell but there is some backstory there and um, you know, he has been hurt as a child and he unfortunately makes the decision to hurt KB, um, which was one of the most more difficult scenes for me to write. But, you know, um, one in one in four black women will have experienced sexual assault by the time they're 18, I believe is the statistic. Um, you know, so putting it in the book was also me recognizing the black girlhood experience and you know unfortunately this this is something that happens and uh you know i think i wanted to also show kb beginning to heal you know because i think so much of this book is about cycles is about growing is about you know finding your way through the the muck and you know she's already been kind of on this this healing journey but interestingly for her character, I think that this moment of healing actually is like her biggest moment of healing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't think she's very aware of the fact that she's grieving the loss of her father, that she's dealing with the trauma from finding his body. I don't think that she's super aware of that. But I think what happens with Rondell, she is extremely aware of. Yeah. And so I think in some ways in the process of healing from that, she's healing from all of it um so i think it i think it served a, a a variety of functions in the novel but um you know it was very hard i i have a, a notebook where i was writing you know different things as i was revising and there's a whole page where i was just like how what if rondell is just good what if he's just good like can i make him good can i you know just have him be a good person in her life and i I, I try, I, you know, I went back and forth on it for so long. Um, but then at some point I read the version of the story where, where, where the, you know, scene happens as it is in the book now. And I felt it like I had read it, but when I read it, I had written it, but when I read it for the first time as a reader and, you know, when I'm revising, I try to do things to step away from my role as a writer. So I don't read things on my laptop if I wrote them on my laptop. So I'll print it out and I'll read it that way, or um, I'll put it uh, on my Kindle or something like that, you know, so I can experience it in a different way. And when I did that and I read it as a reader, it, it yeah. hit me, yeah. it hit. And so then I was like, okay, I think this is a part of KB's story, mm. um, which like you said in the beginning, it's really hard because she's so sweet. 
Um, and I just didn't want anything bad to ever happen to her. Yeah. But, you know, she's also strong. So. Right. Well, so the title comes from like, you know, with the idea of the catching the fireflies, I mean, maybe the first like even connection she had with her granddaddy, you know, yeah. when he showed her how to do it. He, you know, he, he showed, he showed her how to do it. He did it. He did it with her and, you know, Lansing, which is much more, she talks about how she, she likes the quiet more, mm-hmm. more naturey, you know, than, than Detroit. And, you know, her relationship with the, with the grandfather, he, he's a very, he very much a, you know, God fearing man. He has his church. He seems yeah. to be one of those Christians who does live it out. He's not just all talk. Yeah. Um, and he truly feels bad about, um, about the ways that he, he did wrong his daughter. Yeah. Right. Um, she, you know, like, like she had her plans. She wanted to do things. And he, he was also sing. he was also a single father. He lost his wife right. and he just felt like, you know, he didn't want to lose her to the world. And he acted in a way that he's embarrassed about to say the least. And that really, you know, strained their relationship. Yeah. As, as Nia and KB continue to, to bicker and have their issues, you know, they do, they're, they're suffering together. And like you talked about, they, they learn about, Hey, we need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. My daddy has some great advice. He's not a man of many words. Um, yeah. But just, he, he talks to, to Kenyatta and he's just like, Hey, he calls her Kenyatta. It's mm-hmm. good to talk about the people that's gone. Kenyatta. It's, you know, it's good to talk about them. We need to talk about them. Yeah. And like you said earlier, KB is definitely more forthcoming than her sister. Right. But like a lot of it is focusing on the negative. And, and Granny is like, hey, there were some you know great times too. And like, we got to talk about these people to others. Right. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, there's more of a like, hey, we're on the same team, Nia right. and, and KB. And without getting into the end, um, you know, without giving away the ending, they hatch a plan mm-hmm. that kind of sort of goes to plan. Kind of. <laughs> kind of, right? sort of, right? Right. But I just, I'm just so impressed about how you brought everything together, how, again, it's written from a young point of view, who's an innocent, sweet person, but it's not cheesy. It's not Mickey Mousey. It's not, you know, yeah. Um, what's the word? Saccharine sweet. You know what I mean? But so touching, so emotional. I was saying jokingly, but seriously, like, you know, the allergies got to me a bit <laughs> uh, for sure. You're talking about not crying at books. Did you cry at your own book? <laughs> if I may ask, that's a personal question. Oh, um, you know what? I'm trying to remember. I don't think I cried there. You know, I don't know. There was this moment where I read the ending and I finally like knew I had the ending yeah. and that moment was super emotional for me. The ending was really hard to write mm. um, because I am not a fan of happy endings. <laughs> and um, so I was just like trying to figure out what I wanted to do because I had some other endings that were really sad. Okay. And I was like, okay, maybe I can find a, a middle ground. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't know. I just like to be realistic and yeah. you know, like not always going to give you happy endings, but I think that, there, there was at least a hopeful ending, uh, which yeah. I felt really good about. And when I got to it and I read it, I, I was definitely overwhelmed with emotions at, at just what had, what had happened for these characters. You know, it's like they live inside your mind for so long. And then at some point you're like, the end, that's the end of your story. Yeah. So, yeah. One of the comments I can pay you would definitely be like, it's not even an ending. And I mean, that was a compliment. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's okay, there's a potential. It's not like, oh, yeah. everything's wrapped up. Boom, boom, boom. Yep. You know. Cause yep. that's like you said, that's not realistic. Yeah. It's there's potential, there's hope, you know, it's not a Disney ending. It's not right off the <laughs> sunset type of thing. 
right. I wonder what it's um, what it's been like for for you talked about some of the feedback, but like some of the, some of the feedback you've gotten, um, especially from like I don't know, you know, letters or emails, maybe even from yeah. like high, high school students, and then or younger people, and then also just like what it's like to like have people talk about your characters as if they're real people. Yeah, I mean, I give I give I've gotten mostly really positive feedback. Um, a couple people have been mad at me, I think, mm-hmm. about things um, that I chose to do or not do. And so that's been interesting. You know, I went to a book club one time and the people in the book club, they were just kind of trying to make me defend all of my choices. And oh, I was like, oh, oh. this is so weird, you know, like yeah. the book's a book now. So, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about why I chose to write it the way that I did or we can just talk about what's there, you know, yeah. because ultimately I sometimes question my choices, mm. but at the end of the day, it's the, this is the book I wrote, you know, it's right. funny because I told you me and my students have just been reading Blue Sky and, I, you know, Toni Morrison has been, you know, very vocal about criticizing her first book, um, oh, The Blue right. Sky and saying, you know, I'm not really happy with it. I'm not really happy with how it turned out. I didn't really like it. And it's like, you didn't really like it. Okay, Toni Morrison, you know, I know. Um, but Humble I think brag. there's always that. Yeah, <laughs> there's always that feeling of like, well, I could have made this decision and it would have turned out completely differently. Or I could have gotten this point, this point across in this way. You know, I think that's the beauty of, of being a writer and being, for me, what I hope is at the beginning of a long writing career is that yeah. I'm going to tell a variety of stories. And, you know, there are ways that I'm going to depict things in this story that are going to be different than that story. And all of them are going to have meaning. You know, every choice that I make mm-hmm. has meaning. Maybe I could have made a different one. But let's look at the choice that I did make and figure out why it's, you know, how it's how it's meaningful. So, you know, um, but yeah, I get overwhelmingly positive feedback. I get, um, you know, somebody sent me a letter in the mail to to Santa Clara. <laughs> so they found me. Someone found me and got me this mm. this fan mail that had come from someone who wrote me a, a very beautiful letter on a day where I actually really needed to read a beautiful letter uh-huh. um and it was an older woman and she was you know i think she started the letter off with you know wanting to tell me that she didn't have much in common with kb besides the fact that she had everything in common with kb and that's one of the things that i get the most is people wanting to say to me i didn't expect to relate to this character and i did so what much um yeah. yeah and that's that's been beautiful so yeah mm. Here's my imaginary drink toasting to that that, <laughs> that, that that career you're talking about, that long career, the beginning Thank of career. Do you. you want to talk about any projects you got coming up? Not to put the pressure on you. Yeah, you know, we'll see what, you know, we'll see what comes out of it because I have a lot going on right now. But um, I'm, I'm working on the book that I was telling you was like The Hate You Give. Okay. Um, but it's a young adult book. And I'm really excited to try and write a, a young adult book, something specifically for, you know, younger people, but also I think it would appeal to a wide range of, of readers, but um, it's set a bit in the past. It's set right at the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it's kind of considering a group of young people who are, you know, they have something happen to them, but they kind of think, well, this isn't like that, right? Because I think at the beginning of the movement, things would happen and you'd kind of be like, oh, but this isn't a big deal. Like, this isn't that, Right. Um, and so it's like these, this group of young people who are trying to navigate that while they're also just trying to navigate identity and they're trying to navigate high school and relationships and all of these things. So um, I'm working on that. That uh, book I have been working on for almost six years now. Oh, I think wow. this is the sixth year I've been working on it. It was my dissertation when I was doing my PhD. Mm. So um, I'm finishing it this year one way or the other. 
and you know moving along but I'm also working on a uh another book project that is it so it's it's pretty interesting because I actually don't know what it's going to be about exactly yet but it's a travel novel Mm. where my main character uh wants to be a travel writer but she knows nothing about it she's never been out of the country um but it's just a dream that she has and um she gets the opportunity to embark on that dream after some shenanigans Mm. and uh, the really interesting thing about it is I shared that in common with my protagonist that I have also mm. been out of the country. And so my plan is to travel with the character everywhere she goes and kind of see what book forms. Um, and so I just went on my first trip out of the country in December um, with my character. We went to Rome, Italy okay. and uh, Florence. And um, it was wonderful. I took a bunch of notes that will hopefully start to become a a book so that project is more something that you know was personal a lot of ways I wanted to um, embark on this journey for myself and I think writing about it is a really cool way to get myself to do it to get out there and see the world so we'll see where it goes Rome Cacio e Pepe is that the big did you have Cacio e Pepe I did well you know what I did except I got like an upgraded version of it because okay. at the restaurant that I was at they were like oh you can have that but also we have this other version of it that oh. has like muscle like it was a seafood oh, version okay. of it and I was like oh. so I got that um uh, it was delicious it was one of my favorite things that I ate while I was there oh, I ate lots of amazing things so awesome. it's hard to decide but yeah, yeah it was it was wonderful cool well, thanks so much for talking to me. Um, it's just been a pleasure to talk to you. I'm always happy to talk to someone from Santa Clara. Yeah. And, um, you know, the book, like I said, is, you know, hits you in different ways. And I'm sure some, you know, obviously people bring so much to, um, of their own experience to the book. Yeah. And it's so cool to hear the kind of things that you've you've heard, some that I'm sure you planned and some maybe you didn't. Yeah. Just, congratulations. <laughs> it's, Thank you. It's a book that like, you know, the book is always better than the movie, but man, it would make a good movie. It would it would make a good movie, you know. I was so the the book was recently nominated for an NAACP Image Award, which um, has blown my mind. Um, and thank you. Over the weekend, I was at the big nominees luncheon and meeting all of these very fancy people, and I was meeting some you know some movie people, and they were like, "Oh, we love your book," and I'm like, "Oh, how much do you love it? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> would you like to make it a movie?" So, um, you know, that would be a dream. That would be a dream, and that's oh, the dream that we're working on making come true but um yeah it's been such an amazing journey this book has done things that i didn't ever know that it would do i I just found out a couple days ago that it's required reading um for sophomores at one of the local high uh, high schools around here and um so it's just it's really cool like it's you know it's it's getting out there and um people are feeling moved by it and it's Mm. it's amazing Congratulations, you know, people who will be listening. This will be on the Valentine's Day and after, and it's now on paperback. Yes. Uh, get it wherever you buy books. It's a great read. Want to wish you great luck, and thanks again for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a pleasure it's been today to speak with Kai Harris for episode 166. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple. Leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills at Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills at Will PO1. Sign up now for the Chills at Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. My last name is R I E H L. 
Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 167 with My Dervang, who is the author of Yellow Rain, winner of the Lenore Marshall Poetry Prize from the Academy of American Poets, an American Book Award, and a finalist for the 2022 Pulitzer Prize in Poetry, along with Afterland, winner of the first book award from the Academy of American Poets. That episode will air on February 21st. For now, thanks again for listening, and I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Kai Harris, whose work like what the fireflies knew gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.